what you may have just heard there is an exchange between two people, two neighbors, not my neighbors, but just neighbors in the neighborhood in which I'm walking, talking over the street, and an older lady, I call her an old lady, I mean no disrespect when I call a lady an old lady, I think I actually mean it with a, a bit of respect, actually. But anyway, she said to me as I walked by, because there's somebody's playing loud classical music, you know, down the block, and you can hear it. I mean, it's very loud. It was actually very cool. It sounded very raw. I couldn't tell if somebody was doing it in their house with, with instruments or if it was coming from a stereo, because it didn't sound like somebody who was just listening to whatever generic dollar bin classical compilation most people play but uh the old lady said to me as i walked by guess it's clarinet sunday huh <laughs> which you know maybe maybe they do this every sunday you know maybe every sunday they play classical music and she's actually like commenting on something that's ongoing but i like the idea of her just sit, like making that up on the spot like, she's never heard it before, and she just decided to call it Clarinet Sunday, because that's something I would say. That's how I feel about it. That's how much I like what she said. I'm going to make it all about me. I like it so much that I'm going to make it all about me and say that Clarinet Sunday, huh, is something I wish I would have come up with, and I feel like I would have if I lived where she lived, and I heard it all, you know, I could hear it all night. Um, but uh, then she, right after I passed... She yelled out to the neighbor across the street, Masami, which is the neighbor's name. Masami, clarinet Sunday, huh? So she was using her joke. She was using that joke on anybody she could, and I would too. That was a great joke. I mean, that's, I'm not even kidding. I say this with no irony, no facetiousness. That is seriously funnier to me than almost anything I hear from anyone, young, old, doesn't matter who, who they are. Like, that is funnier than almost anything I hear from anybody I know or don't know. Somebody's playing classical music loud. I, I mean, I don't, I don't even know that I heard clarinet. That's the funny thing. I don't know that I would be able to pick it out if I were listening to, you know, an assortment of classical instruments. But it's even funnier if there was no clarinet and she <laughs> said clarinet Sunday. Like, she just like she has some early memory where she associates classical music with clarinets. As you should, but still, it's just funny that that's her, her like, her main association. And little, little did she know that, uh, you know, the person she, she made that joke to is a freak with a podcast who's willing to immediately begin recording. Um, but anyway, on a separate note, you know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, I kind of have this idea where everything that's out there right now Everything that comes out in any form of media veers towards self-help. Where, and by media, I mean like any form of creative content. Content is the awful word that they use for things these days. And it's not even the 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 word the use of that word is that bad. It's not even like it's a particularly bad word or anything. But anything that is brought into the mix. Anything that is brought into, you know, the the modern vernacular, especially in business, 
immediately gets poisoned and immediately starts sounding awful. It immediately becomes unusable. A few years ago, it was branding, which is a valid term in business. You know, the idea of the business is brand. It's something I heard my entire life. You hear businesses, companies referred to as brands. What brand of cereal? It was just kind of this mundane idea. It's like the brand has a logo. I mean, I'm not going to break down what a brand is. But it, it was, you know, a common term used in business that even just normal, everyday people used and understood. And then at some point with just the, the fracturing of everything, it, you started to see it used for individuals referring to themselves and their promotion of themselves. Sometimes not even for any actual reason. Sometimes they weren't actually promoting anything. They're just kind of trying to sell themselves. And people started to refer to themselves as having a brand or just anybody who has some idea that they want to broadcast to other people suddenly has a brand. And so while that was a totally valid word to use, you know, in a business context, like you can see where that word is completely gone now. People don't use it as much. Because even normal people, you know, even when normal people start criticizing a new word or a slang term or a, a buzzword, you know it's really gone. When even just, you know, I don't, I, don't I don't think in terms of NPCs or any of that jargon, I don't see people that way. I don't, I don't dehumanize people into being these NPCs as, as they're called today. But I think there is something to be said for like generic people, normal people. People who are generally following the track, you know, where it leads them. And I don't mean it in a, a critical way at all. I'm just, I don't know what else to call them except like normal or generic people. And I think we all know people like that. And it may mean different things for different people, but I think a lot of people would agree too on what makes someone generic. But anyway, and, and, and there's a ton of value to being generic or to appearing generic when you're not. There's a lot of value in that in life. And value, that sounds awful. The way I just used value sounds like brand or content or anything else. Um, but anyway, just when, when generic normal people start criticizing a buzzword that's been around for a few years, you know it's really on its way out. Uh, so, and that, that's happened to brand. It's happened to various other words. But I do think, you know, the way that everything is... Because, you know, I'll refer to things as fractured, but I think they're also, in fracturing, they're also closer together. So even though things are like, are in many ways more compartmentalized than ever before, the things that are compartmentalized are much smaller. The shards are smaller, but the shards are closer together than they would be if everything was together as the whole. I know that's getting kind of out there and abstract, but that's all I got. That's what God gave me to work with here. Uh, a shard analogy. A shattering. A shattering analogy. But, uh, no, that's kind of how it feels. You know, I wouldn't be able to prove that's how things are now. I wouldn't be able to prove any of that, but that's how I see it. It's the best way I can explain how I see it. I just saw a cat jump straight up in the air. That was fun. Maybe it saw a mouse. Maybe it saw something creepy. Yeah, it just jumped straight up. <laughs> I don't know where it is. I think it's hiding. 
hope it wasn't me who scared it. Uh, but anyway, uh, with before we got into that, before we got lost in the shards, where was I going? I was talking about how, you know, as things have kind of, you know, shattered and it feels like there's a lot more smaller things, but the, the whole of the things are more centralized than ever before. Everything is in closer proximity. Communication. The relationship between everything is much closer together. Even though everything is, in theory, shattered. Even though it's all fractured and shattered. And I'm just going to keep going with this example until I remember what I was actually talking about. I'm just going to keep describing how things break off into little pieces. But they remain close in proximity. Even closer than they otherwise would be. Um, well, the idea of like words and language and, and people and when people become critical of something, when normal everyday people start criticizing a buzzword, they start criticizing anything, you know it's on its way out if even they've gotten sick of it. The same people who probably made you sick of it are now sick of it. And that process happens faster than ever. People get sick of things faster than they ever have. And what does that do? I don't know. Where does that go? I don't know. Can things get faster? Probably. I mean, with how fast things are today, I bet people 50 years ago wouldn't even have been able to comprehend it. I don't think they would have been able to comprehend how much faster things would become. And so I would never say that they can't go faster. I mean, as the snake, as the Ouroboros swallows more and more of its own tail, it's going to be like a merry-go-round out of control. And who knows where that goes? Who knows how, what happens there? I mean, I would have thought that humans wouldn't be able to handle the level of communication, the speed of everything. I mean, the fact that in the last 120 years, I don't know... Uh, uh, I'm not up to date on my technological history, but let's just say in the last 120 years, how quickly humans have adapted to cars, airplanes, even trains, and uh, how quickly they've adapted to their smart nature phones in their pocket, putting them in communication with every single person they know at all times, and how that isn't even enough. Just being, being able to send a message to every single person you know at all times isn't enough. You got to be connected to them on the picture website. You got to be able to communicate with them in the form of pictures and captions for those pictures. That's not enough either. You also have to be in contact with them on the, uh, the site that started as like a college yearbook and has turned into the website that your parents use every day that older people have really gravitated toward in recent years you got to be connected with those same people there too and it doesn't end there you know there's only more accounts more services more sites oh you got a linkedin the worst website anybody's ever created you know uh you know you got to get that too so just being connected in one way to everybody you know isn't enough. You got to have as many different connection points as possible. You got to have as many different spots in that network as possible, as many different access points. It's just weird 
how quickly we've adapted to that and decided it's not enough. I mean, that's what gets me is just going back to the telephone, like the idea that you can call anybody you know at any time and they can answer or they might not answer, but the idea is that you can potentially make connection with every single person you know at any time you want and how that wasn't enough. That was only enough for a while until we developed something else. You know, that was only enough until we figured out an infinite number of other ways to do it. And so that's sort of insane to me, is just the idea that, you know, we figure out these ways to do something that has never been done before. And then we go, you know, that's not enough. Let's find as many different ways to do this as possible. And I mean, I think that's just the momentum of it. I think the fact that human beings want to do anything at all kind of ensures that they're going to keep doing something. Like the thing that makes us want to start something, the thing that makes a human being want to innovate something to begin with, I think is the same component that makes them want to keep doing stuff, keep meddling. The meddling gene turns out is the same gene as the keep meddling gene. Once you start, you can't really stop, and that goes for our, our entire species. But it is amazing how we've adapted, and like, it always comes to mind when people are very critical of the internet, social media. I don't know, people are surprisingly forgiving when it comes to automobiles. People are amazingly forgiving with automobiles for whatever reason. I don't understand it, actually. I don't understand why we are as forgiving as we are with cars. I'm not. But even then, I'm probably more forgiving than I should be, which tells you something. But, you know, if a friend drives insanely fast all the time, if you have a friend who drives insanely fast, doesn't use a turn signal, is a, a truly a hazard on the road, you're very forgiving of them. You might not want to ride with them, or you might give them a hard time. You might, you might be like, oh yeah, Jenny, she, Jenny's got a, a lead foot. Oh, be careful. Uh, you don't want to have to follow Jenny to the party because she's got a lead foot and she'll leave you behind. She'll leave you in the dust because Jenny's lead foot, you know, it makes her go 90 miles an hour in, in a residential neighborhood. You're very forgiving of that. But if you did something even a fraction as reckless of that in another situation, it would be complete insanity. Like if you put people, strangers, the people in your car, anybody, because that, that's what it's, when you drive badly, that's what you're doing. You're putting potentially anybody. You know, you could end up hitting somebody you know or a stranger. I mean, it doesn't make a difference, but I'm just saying it's like, that's the interesting thing about it is it's like, you don't even know. I don't even know who's going to be impacted. But the interesting thing about that is just how forgiving people are of habitually reckless drivers. How forgiving people are of drunk drivers. You know, when you know that your friends drive drunk, especially when you're a drinker. Because I was one of those drinkers who avoided driving drunk as much as I possibly could. Does it mean that I never drove drunk? No. That's the thing, when you drink enough, there's just a, you know, a certain probability that you'll end up driving drunk a number of times. But I, I made a point to avoid it, and I did a pretty good job, all things considered, a pretty good job. 
kind of weird language to use when talking about doing something incredibly dangerous that kills people all the time. It's far more dangerous than a lot of these causes people are parroting. A lot of these social causes that talk about like people at risk and all this stuff, like not to not to dismiss them outright. I'm only pointing out that how absurd it is that uh, cars aren't really treated the same way. Like if you were driving 90 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone and you hit somebody and killed them, chances are almost all of your friends are going to forgive you for that. If you're drunk, some might not. Which is interesting because you'd think that being drunk and driving your car, given that your inhibitions are lowered, you'd think people would be more forgiving of that. They were like, oh, you were drunk and you made a bad decision that ruined someone's life, that killed somebody, that ruined your life. That'd be one thing. But people are actually harsher on friends who drive drunk and hit somebody versus somebody who's totally sober and is just in their totally sober, conscious, clean mind. Whatever counts for clean. That person is deliberately doing it and they have no excuse. So it's interesting that people tend to be more forgiving of that. Like, oh no, yeah, Jenny, oh yeah, she she wasn't drunk. She was just going 90 miles an hour in, in a school zone and killed a kid. It, isn't that awful? I feel so bad for her. Whereas if someone was like, oh, Jenny, she was drunk and she hit a kid. You'd be like, oh, she, oh, screw her. I'm never seeing her again. So I don't know. It's just funny, like... We have this really twisted up logic about cars. And I piss people off when I bring this up too, but it's like cars are far more dangerous than guns. And I guess I wouldn't call it a mistake, but I made the, the misstep of bringing that up. I think it was the day after the elementary school got shot up in Connecticut. And I wasn't even trying to be... I don't know, I wasn't trying to be insensitive to anybody at all. Of course not. I just brought up the point, because everybody was going on. That was like the ultimate... I mean, you're not really going to have a situation that pulls at people's heartstrings more than that in the gun control debate. So, of course, like a bunch of kids getting murdered in cold blood by a machine gun or whatever happened. Like, of course, that's going to be a particularly heart-wrenching tragedy you know you know and the gun control movement is going to be particularly fired up and so i was more responding to that i was more responding to people's total preoccupation with gun control by pointing out that um you know cars in general and it's like and we're also again it goes back to that accept not just forgiveness but this acceptance you know, because I said people are forgiving about the way their friends drive in cars, the way their family drives in cars, even when everyone knows they're a total maniac. And they do it on purpose. People aren't only forgiving of that, they're accepting of it. It's not just that they, it's not just that they don't like it, but they forgive it. They're outright accepting of it, you know? And, they, I, and I think it comes from a desire to feel cool and the fact that, like, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to, you know, create some drama or something with your friends or loved ones over something that doesn't seem to affect you, and I guess doesn't. You know, it's up to you whether or not you want to ride in a car with them. 
Uh, but it, it's interesting to me how you know people are so accepting of it, and I think part of that is this desire to be cool. Because when you're growing up, when you're a teenager, you get this idea that breaking the rules is cool, and often it is. You know, so, and some rules do suck. Some rules are pointless. Even rules that have a reason, sometimes it's good to kind of play around with breaking them. Because, like I always say on here, it's like you know sometimes you have to break a rule to understand its value. And you just have to hope in life that you don't break a rule that's so severe that it ruins yours or someone else's life. Like, if you break a rule that permanently affects your life or somebody else's, that's a whole different story and shows poor judgment in its own right. Like, if you think that you have to kill someone to understand why you shouldn't murder, I think something bigger and worse is going on with you than just rebellion, than just needing to break rules to figure them out. At that point, I think a lot worse stuff is going on if you think you need to break certain cardinal rules to understand their value. But in general, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea for people growing up, for kids. And the thing is, you can't tell them that either. Even though this, I consider this good advice, and a part of me wishes somebody had told me this. I wish that back when I was a teenager, not that I got in too much trouble, because I think I was good at balancing you know, the need to break rules, the need to test boundaries, and not permanently screwing myself up. Uh, but you know, I do think I balanced that out at the time, but I also wish somebody had told me this, which is when you break rules, use that as an opportunity to learn why that rule exists. And if you break it and you can't find a reason, I mean, I think smoking pot is a big one. And it's funny, with that being illegal for so long, it really led, a, like, like the fact that it was illegal did more to radicalize people than the actual drug itself, which I don't think radicalizes people. It bonds to its host. I've said that many times that my experience with marijuana, my many years surrounded by weed smokers of all kinds, all ages, reading about all kinds of people who smoke pot. You know, I, I do believe it bonds to its host, which is why a lot of serial killers would smoke pot even before and during crimes, which, you know, goes against every stereotype you can imagine. Oh, weed will just make you peaceful, man. It'll just make you want to play hacky sacks and, you know, just hang out. And then you find out that, like, Ted Bundy just smoked weed all the time, even when he was in prison on death row. You find out that, like, people like Tommy Lynn Sells, like, he was high, he smoked pot before he broke into, you know, that little girl's house and kidnapped her and everything. And others, too, many others. Jeffrey Dahmer was stoned before the first serial, uh, before the first murder he committed. Like, before he was a serial killer, and he had just um, killed one dude. They were smoking pot right beforehand. They were drinking beers and stuff too. But it's just the idea that somebody could go through with that, you know, under the influence of marijuana. Like a lot of, and, and someone would say, oh, well, those are serial killers. Like they can't be judged. Well, no, it bonds to its host. In that case, it bonded to a host with evil intent. In that case, marijuana bonded 
with I don't I'm not gonna call them evil I'm not gonna say that I don't know whether to say those men are fundamentally evil whether whether their souls are truly evil or not but they were men with evil intent and marijuana just bonded right to that and you see that time and time again which you know I think an early experience people have with that is meeting stoners who don't fit any of the stereotypes oh he's a successful businessman Oh, it turns out, you know, Johnny's dad smokes a bunch of weed. He grows weed. Nobody would have any idea. And I could, you know, go on for a long time about all of the issues with marijuana. All of the criticisms I have of it. Why I think it's a good idea to use it deliberately, at least after a certain point in your life. Rather than just being a dude who smokes weed all the time. You know, I think... You know, I have a lot to say on that. I don't even know that I've, I don't. I don't know that I've properly gone into it. Maybe because it's not that interesting to me. I don't know. So many people talk about weed. Like I, I never expected to. Like like people were talking about weed enough years ago. People were talking about it more than enough 20, 30 years ago. I didn't know people were going to be talking about it even more often, including me. But anyway, uh, you know, it bonds to its host. If, if you're a, a, you know, if you're a disciplined person and you are committed to that and you make a conscious effort and you live a healthy lifestyle, yeah, weed might make you want to overeat. There's going to be, th- weed's going to do certain things to you no matter what, but it will bond to its host. If you are truly disciplined, Weed will bond to that. And you may actually use it in conjunction with your disciplines. Like, I think there's nothing better than working out when you're stoned. Like, lifting weights when you're stoned, you really truly feel which muscle you're using and how you're lifting. If you've ever gone running stoned, I'm, you know, a noticeable dose of edibles while you're running this really intense run and you'll stop and think about it for a second and you'll be like wow you know my heart is really racing i'm breathing very hard but when you're actually running and not thinking about that not thinking about anything not thinking about the the station wagon that just drove by playing pop punk a new station wagon too a brand new probably a 2020 2021 station wagon blasting pop punk i bet that person's 50 years old every time i hear punk of any kind pop punk i look at the driver and it's they're always 50 years old but anyway you know weed bonds to its host no matter whether you have evil intent good intent disciplined there are certain things it will do probably very person to person but there are certainly inevitable negatives to it But that said, it just kind of bonds to the person. Um, Really a spiral of an episode here. And I do want to spiral back to what I was first going to talk about, which was the the inevitability of self-help coming up in pretty much all subject matter today. I kind of have this theory that all roads lead back to self-help in our culture right now. One way or another. Because it's not like this is just one little niche. You know, I've been talking on this show a lot about how people, specifically women, have taken on this 
very distinct therapy sort of language where as a part of everyday language they talk like they're in a therapy session and I'm not even talking about the what they're talking about I'm not even talking about the subject they're discussing I'm talking about the words they use the tone they use they sound like something that you learn from your therapist that your therapist introduces to you as tools Oh, when, when your loved one complains to you about something that's going on at work and you feel overwhelmed by just the thought of it and don't want to listen, tell them, what I'm hearing you say is that you're having a hard time at work and you need someone to listen. But my emotional membrane is wearing very thin right now. So tonight I'm practicing self-care and can't talk to you. That's like the sort of stuff like you hear maybe where I live. Maybe I'm biased by where I live, but I also see it online. I don't think it's geographic. I think it's more just a certain element of our culture. And I'm not even dismissing those sorts of tools. I would never criticize... A, a, a therapist's well-meaning tools to help someone cope with a situation or to help someone cope with their disposition. I would never knock somebody for using those tools or even talking that way when they need to, but I've noticed that it's just part of the conversation. It's not just something you hear when you're arguing with your girlfriend and she busts out that therapy speak. You know, it's not even just something that happens then. It's something you just hear in everyday conversation. You see it in advertising. You know, it's pretty much everywhere. You see it on shows. You see it on TV shows. And of course, like, some of this has always been there. Like, there's always been an element of self-help in anything. But it used to feel like self-help was its own distinct category. And if you were veering into that, it was very obvious. And that was your niche, too. Most self-help people, it was kind of their primary niche. And even if they had something adjacent, like spirituality, they were going to be in that self-help section. The stuff that belongs in the self-help section was always glaringly obvious. And now we've reached a point, though, where almost everything could be placed there. And you can see that on... Uh, you can see it online, for sure. Or, like, someone will get famous for being a comedian... And then their entire platform somehow transforms into self-help. Someone will be a kind of an online political pundit. And then they kind of bleed into this self-help territory. But it's not just big people. It's virtually everybody. And it's this interesting byproduct of, you know, what I've described as bringing the stars down a little closer. And then raising the people up a little higher. You know, because at some point the people seized the means of production. Well, the ability was given to them. The technology, you know, web websites that allow you to publish your own material on their platform. Those, uh, let me collect my thoughts here. Those really helped people seize the means of production, which was like being able to make your own show. Like if you have the resources... You can make your own TV show. You can make your own radio show. And it doesn't require insane resources. 
it doesn't require anything except you and a and basic knowledge of technology an ability to learn how to use certain equipment which i've never done but anybody can theoretically do it and so it brought the stars down a little closer and it raised the people up a little higher and with that though you know obviously the institutions lost power the entertainment institutions which is what they are they're no different than any other institution these companies these you know in movies it was the production houses whatever you call those but uh you know with people seizing the means of production i think people got a little too cocky i think they got overconfident where they forgot that they don't actually own the means of production they might own the equipment they might own the ideas they might know how to use the technology but what we found out in the last couple years in particular last 5 years for sure but it's just increased in the last couple is the no you we did not seize the means of production and i was saying this a few years ago i made this point a few years ago i remember there was a one of the school night tv episodes was about this very subject where i talked about how the people seized the means of production basically people started being able to do podcast youtube shows they started to be able to release their material in a number of ways to even make money doing that in some cases without involving anybody else except for these platforms but as we found out in the last couple of years no we didn't seize the means of production we sort of diluted ourselves and we can see that the the real people who own the means of production the people who own these platforms the political groups who influence those platforms we can see where they can just take the means of production away and you're left with the tools in your hand but nothing to do with them what do you do with a high quality webcam a microphone what do you do with that when you can't release it when you can't actually publish what you're saying or doing that doesn't sound like seizing the means of production to me so it tells you something that they had us convinced that we owned the means of production ourselves when we didn't and i mistakenly thought we did i was totally wrong i like to be wrong because it just means now i know more if i'm wrong it means now i know something else it means i learned something else and i do feel that i've learned that i don't i, I don't even think that's a theory i, I mean i, I don't see how somebody could actually argue with that idea that we've learned very quickly and with the worst imaginable explanations and they are explanations they're not descriptions they're explanations they're trying to convince you but really they're telling you nothing and you can see that with the jargon they use you know i mentioned a while back just to kind of relate all these things i'm talking about when i was talking about words like brand content he's a content creator he's a content creator you know when you hear stuff like that brand content whatever these buzzwords are especially especially when they're buzzwords they're jargon that's used in the business but it's not like purely insider talk yet it makes normal people feel like they're insiders too when they use it like somebody who's never worked for a tech company like you'll you'll hear them in in today's world using the jargon used by tech companies but it's never like the actual inside stuff it's never like the acronyms that you could never imagine what they actually mean it's always something that's just like brand oh companies use the word brand i'm going to use it 
because that's going to make me sound like I know what's going on in Silicon Valley. You know, people do that. They, they're like, oh, this is something that I... It's, so that's what I mean with these terms. These terms, they're kind of like... They exist somewhere between the business world and the world of civilians who want to sound like they understand the business world or they understand the, the world of tech. T-E-K, tech. But it's just an interesting thing where, you know, people will adapt that. And... Uh, I'm not trusting people right now. I wasn't even going to get into that, but no, I'm not. You know, speaking of being wrong, I will get into it for a sec. Why not get into everything? I got a lot more walk to go here. Got a lot more walk to go, and when there's walk, there's more talk. And, uh, you know, some months back, I was predicting, like, just an outburst of violence. And so far, I've been wrong. As far as I know, I'm wrong about that. Of course, there's been violence, but it was... Around the time that there were back-to-back shootings, back-to-back mass shootings, and, and people's response to those shootings was completely unhinged and insane on all fronts. And uh, it was around that time, and then it was around the time, too, that they were the vaccine was first being administered. And I remember going out and like going for a walk and going through downtown, and I think I might have done an episode. It might have been one of the unpublished ones, but... I, I don't know. At this point, I don't even know what goes published and what doesn't. But anyway, I, I just noticed something in the air. Like, I've, I just kept noticing, like, this real serious tension in the air. And I have not felt that recently. Maybe I just haven't been paying attention to the same things. I have no clue. But I have to say, and that's a good thing. That's when being wrong is good. But at the time, I'm like, when the weather gets warmer, you know what the warm weather's like under normal circumstances? Which is true. Like, anytime the weather gets warm, anytime you get true southern we- uh, uh, summer, excuse me, summer weather, you. <laughs> I distract myself. When you try to say summer weather too fast, you get the word southern. No, but when the weather gets warmer, you just you tend to see more violence. You see more cop cars. You see more aid cars. You know, it just seems like people are out more. And the more people are out, the more likely they're going to run into issues with each other. Uh, so, you know, we saw what happened last year. Last year, the warm months, like as soon as things got warm, it was just months of violence. And I think because that happened last year and because it doesn't seem like people are better now, like even though the world is supposedly moving forward, it doesn't feel like people are mentally better, and I've actually seen numerous instances in my immediate life, in my just the life that I observe, people I know, friends of friends, acquaintances, of, you know, just my world. I've seen where, wow, there's a few people where I, I, I see the toll it has taken, and I say this without any judgment, someone might feel the same way about me, but I'm seeing them do and say things, and I'm like, ooh... I didn't know it was this bad, say, a year ago, because you were locked down, but it's like now, I guess now, what the point I'm getting at is now we're going to see the toll that was taken. Aside from people who were like evicted and lost everything in the last year, we haven't really seen the toll that it has taken on people. And maybe people are going to adjust, like in the same way that people adjust very quickly to new technology, I think we're going to see how resilient many people are mentally. And, but there's going to be some people, and I've been saying this for months, there's going to be some people and you're like, oh yeah, they never came back entirely. And, and it's not, I don't say this to be 
negative. I think it's just something to be prepared for, not to look for it in people. Don't go around looking for people to have, oh, oh, she lost her mind during locker down coronavi. Don't go looking for that in someone. But if you start to notice that someone, especially if you knew them before and they seemed relatively okay then, just be aware for their sake and yours. I think you're going to really get a better feeling for the toll that it, the last year plus has taken on people in this period. Because everything's boring right now. Like, I know things are happening. I know people do things. I know every day some little pundit can talk about something going on. Because that's what little pundits do, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of little pundits out there who just discuss whatever the hot topic in the news is of a given day. And God forbid they feel like this Nancy Drew thing where they they think they're breaking some story. And I'm not talking about journalists here. I'm just talking about everyday normal people who have transformed into these little pundits. And I've talked about the little politicians among us. Well, there's some crossover with the little pundit, although it's not exactly the same thing. Not exactly, just some crossover. They go hand in hand. They need each other. The little pundit needs the little politician. And if the little pundit is a little politician too, well then they're like a hermaphrodite who can fuck themselves. Good job. Can you have a kid too? Can you actually do something with this? Great, you can fuck yourself. Can you actually do something with that? <laughs> That's how I feel. That's how I feel about the little pundits who are also little politicians. Psychological hermaphrodites. But uh, yeah, so it's going to take its toll. You know, you're going to see that. And I, you know, I've noticed it. I've noticed it in people. Somebody might see it in me too. And that's even more reason not to look for it in other people. Don't look for the damage that has been done to people. And this, who cares about coronavirus? This is just good to know, period. You know, it's just good to think about this in general. Don't look for the damage in people because the damage in people will be completely obvious at some point if it's there. And uh, another reason not to look for the damage in people is because you don't want people to do that to you because they might find something or they might mistaken they might mistake something. You know, for for some, you know they might they might make a mistake. And you might make a, make a mistake. And that's just a good thing to remember when you judge anybody, which I do all the time. But it's a good thing to remember to kind of steer yourself away from that. And guess what I'm doing right now? I'm doing this self-help thing, which has been a part of this show for a long time. But when I, was, when I brought that up at the beginning, you know, when I brought up how it seems like all media today veers into self-help. And, and what got me going on this tangent was like talking about the sort of therapy language that, in particular, women use in everyday conversation now. But the thing is, like, the male equivalent of that is... There, there's the... Um, I don't know, I mean, there's... there's I mean, I, I don't even know where to, be, where to begin because I see so much of this because of what I pay attention to. But like I said, it doesn't seem to matter like what someone is doing. Chances are, especially if they have an online platform, they will veer into self-help. 
they will completely veer into that. And I, I, I think it's inevitable because I do it too. I stumbled into it some years back. And what I want to get into on that is I was listening to an interview once where somebody said, they were, talk, they were kind of talking about this, really. They were talking about how a lot of people are giving advice these days, how a lot of people are basically veering into this self-help territory who otherwise wouldn't. And one of the people in the interview was like, I don't know why people who aren't successful think they can do that. You know, somebody who isn't financially or, you know, fame-wise a successful person, how can they... How could they t give you advice? You know, advice should only come from successful people, which is a funny point. Like, it's, it's easy to understand that because it's like, yeah, the person who has, you know, hit all the bars, you know, the, the person who's, you know, done all the things that a person needs to do to be secure in this life. You know, someone who's famous and rich for whatever reason. And you see that a lot. I mean, you see that a lot in self-help. A lot of the people are like, I, I became a millionaire through my own business. I'm walking up a very steep hill, by the way. Which is, leads into my next point, which is, you're not a real man if you don't walk at least one steep hill a day. Now, that's kind of the stuff people say, though. Especially kind of the lesser-known self-help people. Because there's this whole kind of like sub-genre of self-help that's aimed at kind of right-leaning young men who have discovered weightlifting and exercise. And you'll see those sort of people, and they'll, they'll say things like, men used to know that you must walk up a steep hill once every day. They've forgotten. You know, they, they try to sound that way. They have this kind of austere way of talking. And you know, and a lot of what they say is actually good. As I catch my breath. Um, no, but a lot of what they say is actually good and helpful. But that niche is funny to me. That niche, how there is this kind of subgenre of self-help. There are subgenres of it. And they come from everywhere. Uh, but uh, how I heard this person talking about, like, uh, you know, who, who wants to listen to someone who isn't successful tell people advice? And that actually hit close to home. Like, I had to think about that because it makes sense on the surface where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, why would you listen to somebody who hasn't proven it? But that also assumes that what you want is what they want. You know, if you're going to listen to, like, trying to think of even who who gives motivational advice who's a very famous person I feel like I could just pull a name out of the hat I'm sure whoever's listening to this could immediately think of somebody but it's funny to me because like it assumes that one that you want what they want like it assumes that the only people who are worthwhile advisors are people who have money, fame, something. Something that's obvi obviously desirable and coveted by those who don't have it. And that's a funny idea because it's pretty much the antithesis of every spiritual story. It's the antithesis of the New Testament. It's the antithesis of Gautama Buddha. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it runs against just about everything. Uh, it, it dwells in, you know, any kind of spiritual territory. So it's funny to me, like the idea that, oh yeah, we'll only listen to Bill Gates and Kevin Hart. We'll get all of our advice from Bill Gates and Kevin Hart because they're the most successful people we can think of. Always listen to the richest guy. Always listen to the most famous celebrity at any given moment. They have the best advice. They probably have great advice. And those sort of people are a good example of like always keeping your ears open. You know, like someone like me would never listen to someone like that for advice. I would never seek them out for advice. But you never know. They could make one tiny comment about something and you might not even understand it right. Like this has happened to me in my life where I hear somebody say something and I'm like, whoa, that breaks it all down. I'm going to put that into practice. And I do. And then like much later, I'll either revisit that thing or I'll come across something. I'll come across the same idea maybe somewhere. And I'll think, oh, wow, I completely misunderstood that the first time. They meant it in a completely different way. But you know what? The way that I misunderstood it was actually kind of good. It helped me. It gave me an epiphany. Turns out it wasn't what they meant, but still like something crossed that threshold and, and changed me or added even just a tiny thing to my life and I didn't even understand them correctly and I feel like I just described anybody who's ever taken you know a philosophy class or read a philosophy book which is not my subject at all but I, I had to take a philosophy class when I was in college one quarter and we just read basically those I can't remember who publishes them I'm sure a million publishers do something similar but it's this one series of condensed philosophy, major philosophers kind of broken down into these condensed, almost like little pamphlets. Like there is writing in them, but they almost feel like little pamphlets. And so we, we would read one of those and then discuss it and write about it in class. And the professor liked what I had to say. He was like, oh, you could pursue this further if you wanted. But like looking back, I don't think I got a single thing that the philosophers were saying. Like, I remember going through Nietzsche, 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 I remember going through Nietzsche and writing some paper on it. I would have no idea what that would be. Like, I was probably just winging it. I was probably winging it every step of the way. Because you can do that. And that probably explains all sorts of things. You know, I mean, that probably explains every branch of philosophy. That it was somebody misunderstanding some someone else and just riffing on that misunderstanding because it made them think in a different way. Uh, but uh, I'm in the land of hills here. But yeah, that that you know the, the idea of misunderstanding something and it actually opening up something entirely new. So through misunderstanding something, you actually probably found something better. Because if you understood it, you might have just read it, said, oh yeah, and moved on. Or thought, hmm, I don't know what he's saying, and moved on. But because you misinterpreted it, you actually got a lot more out of it. Uh, but what I was getting at, though, was like the sort of person who says, you can only get advice from a certain sort of person. Because that's what it boils down to. It's like, don't take advice from just anyone and everyone but I don't even see it as important who's saying it. Now, the person who is saying something truly is just a conduit. 
Like, like if someone gives you good advice and you look at that person and you're like, you don't follow that advice. You don't do that. In fact, you do a bunch of bad things. You know, everything about you actually rubs me the wrong way. And it seems like you cause problems wherever you go. Even if somebody's like that, but they drop one little thing. And it might seem meaningless coming from them based on who they are and what they do. That doesn't actually change the information. And you can interpret that any number of ways. You know, one person might be like, oh, it's God speaking through that person. It's, you know, their, their soul in its pure form briefly communicated with you before returning to this human mess they've created. Or you can just be like, hmm, that guy just talks a bunch of bullshit and makes things up. But like a monkey at a typewriter, this time he actually made something up that makes sense. And I'm going to do something with it. Even if I just keep it in my mind. Even if I just keep it in the back of my mind. Even if I just like the way it sounds. Keep it around. Keep it in your head. And I've been a person who, like, I very rarely listen from the people you're supposed to listen to. Like, I very rarely listen to that, and I've always tended to gravitate towards the person who... I mean, it's something that, you know, you see in the Bible, too. You see it everywhere. But, I mean, it's it's Jesus when he decides to sit with the thieves and whores, you know? It's in a lot of stories. You know, the story of the person who, I mean, it's Socrates, you know, wandering around the streets. Someone probably would have looked at him and said, you know, what's up with that guy? What does that guy have to say about anything? They, they killed him. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the story is everywhere. The story of just finding the greatest wisdom in the least likely places. But that's almost become such a trope itself. That some people will just say, like, spend time with homeless people just thinking that they're going to get some street wisdom. Meanwhile, they don't get anything. They get a headache. They get trouble. And I have a specific story, actually, about that, where I was at a bar with a friend years ago, and we saw this old guy, like a street guy. And I'd seen him around before. He would come into the bars come into this particular bar all the time and he would just go around the patio out back and ask everybody for a handshake he would do i saw him do this more than once and like one time i refused to give him a handshake one time i think i did just wanted to keep him on his toes not let him assume that i'm gonna not let him assume that he gets a free handshake from me every time but he would come around it kind of seemed like a, a nuisance because i mean he was kind of grimy you know, nothing against the guy, but he didn't look bathed. And you, you never know where someone's hand has been. Like, I don't, you know, it's funny how, like, you're willing to shake some stranger's hands, but not others. Like, you go into Comcast and, like, the sales representative walks up to you and shakes your hand. But there's some strangers, like, there needs to be a reason for a handshake, I guess, is kind of how we think. Because it seemed like this guy didn't have a reason for a handshake. Some drunk guy who comes in off the street all the time and just wants to shake every single person's hand in the bar. Just kind of annoying, too, you know? It's, it's like one of those things that you would laugh at when you're 13 years old. Like when you're a 13-year-old with your friends, like going to the city together for the first time without your parents, like taking the city bus. 
and you know some guy from the street like goes throughout the bus shaking everybody's hand as a teenager you just like giggle because it's so weird but i feel like past a certain age you're just like yeah you know don't go around out here shaking everybody's hand like i'm glad you're nice but anyway i saw this guy another night my friend and i were sitting there and we saw that guy sitting at a table with this group of young kids. Like, they were obviously 21. They were old enough. They were probably 21, actually. They were very young, but they were old enough to be in a bar. And I, was, I said to my friend, I was like, hey, that's that guy. That's the guy who shakes everybody's hand. And it looked to us at the time like he was hassling these kids. Like, they looked very wide-eyed while they were talking to this guy. He, just, he didn't belong at the table. And because I knew that he goes around asking for handshakes, I was just like... Maybe he's giving these kids a hard time. And so we actually went over and like sat down at their table. And it turned out we were the ones giving someone a hard time. Like it turned out we were the problem actually. Because we were very aggressive. And I've, I never act this way. But uh, like we just pulled up chairs at this table with these strangers. Here I am complaining about a guy who wants to shake everybody's hand in the bar. Turns out I just pull up a chair. But I said, I think I just sat down and I said, is this guy bothering you? I think I just opened the conversation like some stupid movie line or something like this guy bothering you and uh, the kids were like oh no no we know Joe I remember the guy's name was Joe because uh, uh, afterward I came up with the nickname handshake and Joe very original I know but I think I called him shaky handshake and Joe and then he it just became shaky Joe that my friend and I referred to him as Shaky Joe because he went around shaking hands one couple nights. But the kid's like, oh, no, we know Joe. You know, he, he's got a lot of problems. Talking about him as if he's not there. <laughs> it was kind of like that, though. And he was like, yeah, we know him. Like, yeah, we've known him a while. He's like, one time we invited him in to our party. Like, we had a house party and we invited him in and we had to kick him out. And so at least I feel like I was on the money where it's like, this guy has some potential to kind of cause issues. And I don't know. I mean, that just, it just seems like you're asking for trouble to these kids, these young kids having a house party and they invite the homeless guy in to party with them. Like it kind of goes back, like in high school, this kid I knew had a, a party at his house and the theme was like dressed like a homeless person, which I didn't. We just showed up, like took a couple of bong rips and left. But we went to this party and like everyone was just wearing like stupid clothes. Like they didn't even look like hobos or anything. They just, they, it was just like an excuse to put on like their dad's clothes or something. It was really goofy. And my friend and I were sitting there and we were like, you know what we should do? Cause it's not like we were offended. Like we weren't offended that they had a, these kids in a middle to upper class suburb were having a, a homeless themed house party. Like it wasn't malicious or anything. I mean, people would be horribly offended. People would lose their jobs over that today. Actually, I should use that as extortion. I remember some of the people who were there. I should uh, hold that over their heads to extort them. I should be like, hey, hey, Mike. Do you remember the party you held in, you know, junior junior year? You know, you can hold that over someone's head. It's funny. I mean, that's what people do now, though. You know, that's what people do. Um, but it was just funny because it was this costume party, and uh, yeah, it was it was a dress like a, a homeless person party, and 
that is like the the good thing. I mean, people, this is a cliche that people say, but people are always like, "I'm so glad that I was a kid before social media or in the internet and the phones." And that's a good example of where I bet all those kids, if they even remember it, but it was a bunch of kids drinking. You know, high schoolers drinking. I remember they were playing drinking games. And it's one of those things, though, where I bet someone remembers it, and I bet they're glad that nobody had phones. I bet they're glad that people didn't have a camera in their pocket. I bet they're glad that those moments weren't saved forever. Not because there's anything that bad about it, just because that's the culture we're in. Where that dress like a homeless party you had in 2003 might ruin your life in 2021. But my joke at the time, like my friend and I were sitting there and we weren't into it. Like we didn't really like the people who were there. And I was like, hey, hey, Steve, we should go downtown and find a real homeless person and bring them here. And we had a good laugh, like thinking about that, like the idea of like a real homeless person going to this, you know, middle class house of kids dressing like homeless people while they play drinking games and like just ripping the house apart. Like just like drinking all the beer and just like hitting on girls and just like tearing shit out of the walls. That's what I imagined. So it's funny to me though that like this kid at the bar, he's like, oh, we've invited Joe into the house for our house parties. <laughs> we've invited this stray cat. That's how people talk though. It's like we invited the cat in and offered it some food, but, but no. No, I mean, it's nice. I mean, he's a human being. It's like, and these kids might have some connection to him. You know, maybe they know him somehow. Maybe he's a family friend. I don't know, but it was... It was just was unexpected, and I, it seemed like he was hassling them, but we ended up scaring the hell out of Joe. Like, he was looking at me, like, terrified. I felt really bad, actually, because, like, I, I didn't say anything, like, outwardly aggressive. I mean, beyond this guy giving you a hard time, you know, beyond that, which is kind of aggressive, I think just my demeanor, you know, just my vibe wasn't good. But I, I ended up talking to Joe and found out, like, he has a daughter, and I asked her, like, and he told me, like, where she lives, you know, and, and he, like, really eased up. Like, he was no longer afraid of me. And we had a really, you know, just a, like, a man-to-man -man conversation. And his eyes lit up, I remember, when he talked about his daughter. And this isn't some, like, you know, people of New York story or something. You know, this isn't something, like, and it turns out the, hu the homeless man was human after all. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not even one of those. You know, it was just a situation where I was like, eh, this guy's going around shaking hands all the time. He's sitting with these kids who he doesn't seem to belong with. And I got really aggressive about it and, like, went over and, and, and tried to make a scene, honestly. I was kind of making a scene, but it all it all went well. It all went very, very well. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the reason I bring this up, though, is because... The way the kid was like describing Joe, I know because that's what happened. That was actually my point. Of course, I almost missed my entire point. My point is that when I was talking to the kid about Joe, because I said to him, I was like, I, I, he comes in here and he like asked to shake every person's hands. I saw him sitting here like talking very outgoingly with you. I just, you know, I just thought I'd check in. It was a kid. You know, I probably wasn't much older at the time. I was probably like 27 or something. This kid's like 21, but I don't know. You know, I don't need to justify why, why I did what I did and nothing came of it. But the kid said to me at one point, he goes, Joe is a wise man. And I said to him in response, I said, I don't know if he's a wise man, but he's a kind man. 
And my friend Nick, who was with me, like he 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 held on to that. <laughs> like like the next day, like Nick just repeated that to me. He's like, you know, last night you said Joe's not a wise. The kid said Joe's a wise man, and you said I don't know about a wise man, but he's a kind man. And now I look back on that, and I'm like, isn't that the same thing? I'm like, yeah, if he was a kind man, which he was, it turned out. Joe, it turns out, was a kind man at heart. And uh, looking back, though, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, isn't that the same thing? Isn't the fact that he was a kind man, doesn't that make him a wise man? See, you learn things. I was wrong then. It's another example of a time where I was wrong twice in that story. I was wrong because I misjudged. Like, I thought Joe was this out-of-his-mind hobo harassing these poor kids and it turns out it was half true but in reality he was just just a kind-hearted guy who's got problems of course but then i was wrong about the wise man thing you know i was wrong when the kid tried to tell me he's a wise man and i said he's simply a kind man not a wise man listen kid i'll tell you more about joe than you know But it does kind of fit into this idea, because, you know, what I was responding to, like, because this is, this is not new for me. Like, the idea of someone, like, I, I was talking about the trope of, like, the street sage. And that's such a trope that people will look for it even where it doesn't exist. They'll be like, oh, you have a white beard. You have a long white beard and you're covered in rags. You must be, like, Gandalf. You must be, like, Gandalf. Oh, he's like Gandalf. And it's not always true. You know, it's not always true. It's not always... Uh, the guy who looks like a sage doesn't always have sage-like advice, for one. Just like the guy who's successful, the guy who has a lot of money, the guy who has a lot of fame, it's the same thing. He might not have sage-like advice, or they might both. You know, the, the whole point is, is that there's no one sort of person... There's no category of person who's better at helping people, better at giving advice or wisdom. But it was funny because this kid, I could, I could tell though he kind of was looking for that. I could kind of tell that like his thing with this guy Joe, like inviting him to his house party, sitting with the, him with him at the bar. Like the guy probably was wise and I'm just really off base with all this. But it was just funny because that is a thing that people will look for even when it doesn't completely exist, even when it's not there. People will be like, oh, he sure looks like a wizard. He must be a wizard. And not always true. But that is that sort of idea. So it's just, I'm just, I'm just riffing on this whole thing about the idea that in order to get good advice, you should listen to wildly successful people. Because it's not always true. You know, you can truly get good advice. You can be helped by any kind of person who's doing any kind of thing even if it directly contradicts the thing they're saying. And sometimes those are the people who know it better than others. You know, sometimes like the person who gives you advice and you know that person contradicts that advice all the time. Well, maybe you should listen to them because they actually do know what they're talking about. They know the consequences of not following that advice all the time. And maybe they're in too deep. Uh, so, you know, you never know. Like someone who gives you certain advice but doesn't follow it, you could say they know the material because they've been doing the opposite all this time. 
and maybe you should listen to them. Like when some, it's like the idea of like someone who does drugs telling you not to do drugs. And if that's your parent, like the, the classic kid excuse, the classic kid excuse with drugs is like, well, you did it. You tried weed, Dad. And uh, and the parent will say, like a smart parent would be like, well, yeah, I did. And that's how I know you shouldn't do it. Which is always better, in my opinion. Like, that's always a better line than I've never done it, and therefore you shouldn't do it. It's what I was talking about recently, about being able to relate easier to people who I know have not gone off the rails, but have at least played around with substances. Abused them. Not just played around, but like abused them, even just in college, even just in a completely normal way. It's just, it's a little bit easier for me, I feel, to talk to somebody when I know that they've messed around with their consciousness a little bit. And it doesn't matter how. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, I don't know. I mean, and, and you know, I don't, I don't think I have anything in common with junkies in particular. Nothing, nothing even against them. I just, I don't necessarily relate to the whole opiate heroin thing. I've never delved into it. But uh, just knowing someone has fucked around with substances, I see, I don't know, I find it easier to relate to those people. Not even about that, but I just find it easier in general. Because they've at least experienced something that isn't what they felt the day they woke up, the day they came out of the womb. Like, it's crazy to think that there are people in this world, you know, yeah, there are emotional ups and downs, there are psychological conditions, but there are people who have only experienced the world exactly as it was from the time they left the womb. That's incredible. And that's cool, too. You know, I mean, it's not that I have anything against that. I'm just talking about it's easier to relate to people who have altered their consciousness, especially those who have pushed it. But, um, you know, with the, with the whole drug thing, alcohol thing, it's not even about the experience that those things create. It's just the simple fact that it's somebody who felt the need or just wanted to kind of just shift things. They like contrast because, I mean, I talk about how contrast is essential to pretty much any story change but contrast one thing going for you know one thing becoming its opposite basically is an important part of storytelling you know well it's 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 also true for i mean why people abuse drugs and alcohol which is contrast it contrasts with your waking reality it's not necessarily to escape it's not it's not necessarily to feel a specific thing it's not necessarily for pleasure I think for me, it was about contrast. It was about those moments where you say, things feel a lot different. Things look and feel a lot different than they normally do. And my favorite version of that is when it's subtle. You know, I, I've certainly tried hallucinogens over the years, done plenty, you know, not a ton, but plenty. And well, that, you know, had its value, you know, it had its I'm glad I tried that stuff. I'm glad I, you know, checked all that stuff out when I was younger in particular. Um, But more than that, like what I've always enjoyed the most is that feeling when you're just something, whatever it is you took, whatever it is you drank, you're just something 
enough to be aware of it. And of course, that's impossible to preserve. That's impossible to sustain, which is why you run into trouble. Because it's almost impossible to balance that, and then there's tolerances, all kinds of things. Uh, but I've always enjoyed that feeling of contrast, of knowing that my consciousness felt a little bit differently. My perception of the world was a little bit different 10 minutes ago, an hour ago. And it's cool that suddenly I'm aware of that distinction. And that was really all I was ever looking for. But it's very difficult to find that. And, I mean, that... <laughs> going back to the self-help thing, I don't know what it is. I don't know why all roads right now have been leading back to that. I don't know why I feel the need to comment on it. You know, I have no idea. Uh, I have no idea why I need to, you know, throw out little hints and tips about life. I don't know that they're even helpful. But I think that's part of it. I think I think the more people, like, you know, talking about things being compartmentalized, you know, into these fractured shards, but how those shards are also close to each other. I think that what this is, it's all the little shards communicating with each other, saying do this. I, you know, I don't even know. It, it's obviously not something that people are consciously doing. But the way that I see all this, it's not a bad thing. Even though it's a trend, and I'm skeptical of trends, I'm not skeptical and I'm definitely not cynical if they help people. If they substantially enrich people's lives and make people stronger, I don't care how trendy it is. Because in that case, the trend is good. They're good trends. I have to remind myself of that. I can be so critical when I notice that something is a trend that I forget about good trends. And in this case, I think it's been a good trend overall. Even though it's kind of annoying, even though you know, there's a lot out there like this. And sometimes you're like, man, like, I just wanted to see people joke around. I just wanted to listen to people joke around, and now they're on this self-help kick. But it is a preach-what-you-need sort of idea, where it's not necessarily preaching at you. It's preaching what works for the person speaking, and that's all I do. If anything on this show ever comes across like self-help, one, good, that's my goal, <laughs> and two, the second part is just... You know, we're ultimately going to be better off the more people who are thinking this way. Because it does come from me. About me. But I talk about it because I think that somebody else might be able to relate to it. And that's been a motto, a mantra on this show. It's been kind of a slogan of this show for years. Which is preach what you need. Preach what you need. Like, if I ever say something that comes across preachy, I'm preaching what I need. And it might be something that I've already put into practice, or it might be something that I'm hoping to. And by verbalizing it, maybe I'm inching closer to actually doing it. But it's something that I see the value in. But it's ultimately something that I need. So I'm preaching what I need. And it's been, you know, one of the mottos on this show for years. When I do start getting preachy, and I have to say that because it's the truth... 
And I think a lot of people are coming from that place. Even though some people are trying to sell something, some people are just hopping on the trend thinking they can capitalize, just like they did in the earlier incarnations of self-help, just like people do with literally everything, just like they do with creativity. You know, people start bands just to get attention and just to, you know, get something from people, just to get some sort of, you know, external validation. So it's like, of course... There are people who are going to hop on the self-help trend for whatever reason to make money, promote themselves, promote their brand. Because that's something you see a lot in the self-help subgenre. The, the, the self-help genre, which has a bunch of other subgenres in it. But I think it's a good thing that people are doing it. Even though it's a trend, and even though it can get annoying when people kind of get preachy or start telling you how to live your life one way or another. I see it as the shards kind of communicating with each other. You know, something got shattered, and I don't even know what that something is. In my visual, it's glass or mirror-like. You know, it's kind of got a mirror-like look to it, silvery, reflective. But something, something has been broken into these an infinite number of tiny shards, but in them being shattered, they're actually closer together than they were when they were just all part of one whole entity, one whole object, however you want to visualize it. And I see these kind of people giving these little tips and hints, people who are kind of climbing up on a platform, standing in front of a podium they built themselves, I see those as the different shards kind of saying, hey, I think if we do this, we might be able to form that whole object again. Here's what I'm figuring out. I've, I've found that if I think this way, or if I do this, I feel like I, I feel my shard kind of move a little bit. And it, feel like, it feels like it's moving in the direction that I'm supposed to go in. It, feel, it feels like I'm moving in the right direction. And then other shards are communicating their findings. And a lot of them are finding similar things. That's the amazing thing. Is that a lot of them will say something and they'll think, Huh, I noticed the same thing. When I do that, I notice that I feel like I'm going in the right direction, too. And it actually makes going in the right direction even easier. And then other people start to hear that. There's, there's shards that haven't even tried. There's shards that haven't even tried. Who hear that, and they say, huh, maybe if I do what they're doing, it'll, I'll start to feel myself moving. I'll, still, I'll start to feel myself kind of wiggling a little bit. And sure enough, they do. And then there are people who disagree. Or there are people who are just critical. There are people who say, why are you giving all that self-help advice? Oh, you're, you're hopping on the self-help trend, huh? You're building up your self-help brand. Yeah, well, you're a little shard. What do you know? What do you know? What does a little shard like you know? I mean, that's basically like the same argument as the guy who said, uh, why, would you, why would you take advice from somebody who's not rich and successful? You're just a little shard. What do you know? What do you know about going in the right direction? Because 
it doesn't matter what we're talking about. There's a right direction no matter who you are, what you're doing, or where you are. There's, there's always a right direction. And when you go in that right direction, it feels right, first of all. If you clear a path for your intuition, it will feel right. But you might start to notice other little signs that you're on the right track. Almost like signposts. It could be synchronicity. You could start to experience synchronicity. I know that's what's happened for me. And then people often confuse it because the right path isn't necessarily the most pleasurable path. And it could be a painful path. I've followed my gut on a, in a few strange ways in my life that told me I was going in the right direction. But it wasn't like a... It wasn't taking me to the place where I was meant to be all the time. Like, it took me on an adventure that may have been dark and painful in some ways. Probably fun. There was probably something fun about it, you know, at the very least. But still, it might have taken me down a very dark and strange direction. So it's not like the right path. Like, when you feel like you're moving in the right direction, it doesn't mean the most desirable outcome for the rest of your life. The right direction doesn't mean, oh, you mean... Oh, so you're saying to listen to my intuition if I want to head in the right direction. So I guess my intuition is going to lead me to Baja, California. My intuition is going to lead me to Baja. And I'm going to be sipping a Mai Tai on the beach the rest of my life, right? No, the right direction might take you down a painful path. It might, take you, it might put you in a relationship with a girl... Or a man who, you know, you were meant to spend time with. But it's not meant to be your wife. You're not meant to be together forever. Your souls aren't intertwined. But you're meant to spend a little time with them. You're meant to learn something from that. And it could be going somewhere. It could be any number of things. It could be doing a certain line of work. It could be anything, honestly. It could be truly anything that a human being can do. And we manage to find ways to do things that human beings haven't done before. So why limit yourself too much? But that right direction, I just want to make this totally clear since I'm preaching what I need here. And I think maybe somebody else could... Even if you, even if you misunderstand this, and interpret it in your own way. I think it's good to realize that sometimes the right direction... I mean, it goes back to the rule-breaking thing. Like, sometimes going in the right direction means breaking a rule. It means breaking a rule so that you understand the rule better, and you now have the experience of breaking the rule, and maybe you went on an adventure. You smoked a little weed with your friends. You're not supposed to. It's illegal. It's 2002. Marijuana is illegal, and it could potentially not ruin your life. Like, none of the kids I know who got caught smoking pot, even by cops, it didn't ruin their lives. But it, it's, a, it's a speed bump. It's, a, it's hitting a brutal speed bump. Like, all the kids I knew who got arrested with weed and things like that, none of them, one of them had an ounce. I don't think he got in serious trouble. But trouble, it was a problem. It wasn't good. Uh, but, you know, it's like breaking that rule... You're going to have some fun. You're doing something you're not supposed to do. Your parents and the law tell you not to do it. So you do it. You have a little bit of fun. And you might also understand, though, like why there is a guideline about drugs. 
Like while you might say, oh, it's absurd that weed is illegal, you might still be like, oh, well, I understand through experiencing drugs, I understand more about why people have reservation about this. I understand why some laws exist. I don't know. I don't know what kind of conclusion someone would draw from that. But, you know, the, the, going back to the breaking a rule, and because of that, you now have the experience that that brought you, the adventure, because breaking rules often brings adventure. I mean, that's one of the best reasons to break a rule is for adventure. But you also now have a better understanding of why that rule exists, why it was created. And I think that's very similar to the right direction, going in the right direction. Because as a kid, like sometimes going in the right direction is actually doing what you're not supposed to do. Sometimes it does mean doing something your parents don't want you to do or the school doesn't want you to do. And you have to do a lot of that growing up. You should do a lot of that, depending, I mean, depending on your situation. But, uh, you know, I, I recommend it. But that's interesting because the right direction doesn't necessarily mean what you're supposed to do. And it also doesn't necessarily mean something good or productive. It just might be an experience you need to go through. And it might be completely painful. And we're all going to have to go through that one way or another many, many times in our lives. So the more you can kind of understand this, the better off you are. And I think you can actually see death this way. Where you no longer see death as the wrong direction, which is how a lot of people frame it. Oh, death's the wrong direction. No, death is the right direction. It's the only direction that you can count on. Uh, and that doesn't make it good or bad. And so I guess that's what I'm getting at is the right direction for you, which I want to stop saying soon. But just so, you know, it's clear I'm talking about that still. It's still going on about the right direction, the right stuff. You know, it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's not necessarily something that you can permanently hold on to. Often it's not. But then it is. It's not one or the other. I mean, meeting your wife, I don't have a wife, but meeting your wife could be that too. It probably is. It should be. So you might have to go through something painful and that is the right direction at that time, but you might also get led to something wonderful. And you might not be able to get the wonderful thing without having gone through the painful thing, even if those two things are not directly related. But they put you on the timeline. I mean, I think about this sometimes as far as like what could have been or, you know, not what could have been, but just like the way that one decision can impact your life where years ago I took a, a trip to the beach one day and I was driving back and I passed through the town of Aberdeen, known as Kirk Corbrain's, Kirk Corbrain's hometown. And, uh, you know, I've never, I like Aberdeen. It's, it's, it's like empty buildings. It's people, you know, on meth everywhere. I mean, the, the town is just crumbling before your eyes. But I like it. It's old buildings. It's atmospheric. You know, it's a good place. It has a Star Wars shop. This old guy who just runs a, star, a store 100% dedicated to Star Wars. And it's like, but it's like a junk store. 
it's not like collector's items and cases. There's a little bit of that, but it's really like this junk store of Star Wars stuff by this old man. But I was passing through there on my way home from the beach, and this is when I still drank. This is like, I think this is, yeah, this is May 2017, I think it was. And I, on my way back, I was like, you know what? I'm going to stop and get just one drink. I'm going to have one. I hadn't, I hadn't had anything to drink all day. I was on my way back and I was like, I'm going to stop in Aberdeen just so that I can say I've had one drink in Aberdeen because I've never had a drink in Aberdeen. I want to be able to say that I've had one. So I stopped into some like restaurant bar, a place I would never hang out in. And I just ordered one mixed drink. I ordered like a, you know, a whiskey Coke, a whiskey soda, something like that. And I drank it. I honestly didn't enjoy it. I mean, we're getting, you know, we're getting into, uh, the final months of me drinking and I, I no longer really enjoyed the idea of just going out and getting a single drink like the idea of just stopping in Aberdeen getting a drink which really isn't going to do much for me then driving another hour or however long it took to get back to Olympia and then resuming drinking later that night maybe you know whatever my plan was but the idea of just getting one drink it was a waste of money and time like it wasn't enough to do anything for me I didn't hang out and appreciate the atmosphere. It was in a restaurant that I didn't even like. You know, not my place at all. And so it felt like a stupid decision. I was like, wow, I, why did I need, why did I feel the need to get that drink? And then when I got back to Olympia, I'd just gotten off the highway and I was heading to my house and I was at a stoplight and I see this car coming up behind me and it crossed my mind, like, well before they got close to me, it just crossed my mind where I was like, I feel like this car isn't going to stop. Not because they were driving insanely fast. Again, intuition. It was just the vibe it gave me. I was like, huh, that car, I don't think it's going to stop. And sure enough, it didn't. And they just rammed right into me. Not at a super high speed, though, which is interesting. Like, it wasn't like they slammed on the brakes and then like screeched into me. It was like they were just kind of going like a, like a, a half-ass speed. It's like they were going slow, but just didn't stop. And it still it gave me whiplash and everything. And then I, the light turned green and I pulled through the light and then I pulled off the road to the side, assuming they were gonna pull off with me. And they kept going. And so I'm like, wow, I hit and run. I'm, I'm in the middle of a hit and run. And so I pulled back out into the road and I started following them, but they weren't driving fast and I could see this little crop of gray hair. I could see that they had short gray hair. And then I continued to follow them into my neighborhood and they just started snaking all around. Like they were just like winding their way around this, this purely residential area, but they were running stop signs and like driving up on curbs. And every once in a while, like when they were turning, I would get a glimpse of their face and I just saw this completely vacant, glazed over look. And I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. It seemed more feminine. It seemed more like an old lady. But it was just this completely glazed over face, this completely blank face with short gray white hair. And I kept following them. And I was on the phone with 911. I was talking to my friends, the caps, and, and I was telling, I was talking to the dispatcher and I was just saying, I, I was saying, this is so surreal because I was narrating me following this woman. It turned out it was a woman 
I was narrating me following them, and you know, it was this little Honda Fit too. It was this tiny little car, and I, I was just telling the dispatcher, I, I should try to get a hold of that. Maybe they have a recording of it somewhere. It was like five years, four years ago, but I should ask them if they have that because it's me going. Hey, just so you know, this is extremely surreal. I'm following this person who's going 15 miles an hour. Because the whole time I was behind them, she was going 15 miles an hour at most. So she was like really just driving around very slowly, running stop signs. So something was up, obviously. And then I followed her around enough, and then she parked in front of this apartment building. And I pulled in behind her, and she was getting out of her car. And it's not even a place you're supposed to park. And I said, hey, you hit my car, and drove off. And she said, huh, what? totally blank it was terrifying because she had no idea that she had run straight into the back of my car like yeah she was going 15 miles an hour but if you drive a, a car 15 miles an hour into the back of another car that's completely stopped that's a gonna be a wallop like imagine running into somebody at 15 miles an hour imagine you're running at 15 miles an hour and you run into another person you know, so you can imagine that even at 15 miles an hour, you're going to know that you ran smack into the back of someone's car and it turned out completely fucked up my car, more than even you could even tell. Uh, excuse me for all the language, it's a, it's a weekend, you know. This is my weekend language now. But it was just the craziest thing and she got out and she did not know at all. And I probably told this story on here before. See, see what I mean is like someone's accepting of that guy that guy's friends don't treat him like a pariah because he drives like that this guy who just drove by but yet they would probably treat someone like a pariah who does far less dangerous stuff like they probably treat somebody like a pariah for their political opinions but accept and forgive their friend who drives like that guy who you just heard just an just a crazy thing about our the way we view cars, this weird way that we view them. And I think that's worth getting into another time because I think I need to do more thinking on why we don't give each other as hard of a time about how fucking awful we are in cars, how afraid we are of like being uncool. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll get into that another time because I don't think I've thought it through enough, but I've, I've just, I'm aware of it. So this lady ran into me anyway, long story short. Old lady ran into me, she had dementia, severe dementia, Alzheimer's, and she had no idea that she had hit me, and it was terrifying, because once she, once it hit her, once like, you know, no pun intended, but like once it hit her that she had hit me, she broke down, and she was crying, and she was really upset, and the cops were there, and they were very cool. You know, they got me what I needed out of the situation, but they also treated her compassionately, which is important, because like, you know, it was a hit and run. But what was crazy is it totaled my car. Like, I drove around in that car for months. Oh, and one more thing about the, the scene, the apartment. She was going to that apartment because it turns out she was a caretaker for this woman in a wheelchair who lived in the apartments. But it turned out she wasn't even meant to be there that day. So she was in, it was a full-on episode. It was like a full-on, like I said, Alzheimer's or dementia episode where she went to the, she hit me and didn't know she hit me. And then she went to this apartment where she helps this woman on the wrong day. And the woman in the wheelchair came out. And what made it very surreal and strange on top of everything else, and I still have a photograph 
is like at one point, like the old lady who hit me, she like put her arms up over her face and like leaned against her car, like crying. And I was just taking a picture of the accident and I caught this picture of it and it's a brutal scene where it's like this woman's realizing what just happened and hopefully she'll never drive after that. You know, hopefully that was when her keys got taken away, which is awful. I mean, it's awful to think that, you know, I might be the reason, even though I didn't cause it, like I might be the reason this woman can no longer drive, even though that's the right thing. It's just sad for me to think about. Um, but then, so this, you know, this woman is like crying and it was just really sad for everybody. And then the woman that she takes care of in the wheelchair, I didn't, it took me a few minutes to realize what was going on, but she had some sort of, I don't think she had control of her bowels or her, you know, her bladder because of whatever condition she had. And so I think she had like a, uh, however you say it, like a colostomy bag. And you could hear like every few minutes, like a trickle and other noises. Like I, uh, honestly, I, there was so much going on. I didn't, I wasn't specifically trying to hear it, but I remember hearing just like this assortment of bodily noises. And then I realized that like this woman is just sitting there and she was really cool. Like she gave us information on the woman and stuff. But the fact that, like, this woman was just sitting there in her chair, just pissing while all this was going on, definitely just added to the surreal nature of all of it. And But, yeah, it ended up totaling my car because it turns out, like, even though she just hit my bumper, the way she hit me or something caused the entire, whatever you call it, like, the undercarriage became totally compromised. And, and I was driving on it for months afterward. And it turned out that like the way that the way that it had been compromised was like the metal became very brittle. I don't know what caused it, but basically like the entire underside of my car could have like fallen out at any time. And yet I was driving my car all over only to learn that, yeah, it could have been an absolute disaster. But anyway, the whole point of that was just that like if I hadn't stopped in Aberdeen for one drink, I wouldn't have been at that stoplight at that exact time for that woman to run smack into me. Do I regret getting that drink? No, of course not. But it's kind of funny that when I was drinking the drink, I was thinking, huh, this isn't very enjoyable. I shouldn't have stopped. It felt like I was going against my intuition. But I, I, I was so attracted by the novelty of getting a drink in Aberdeen by myself that I, you know, got this drink and the exact amount of time that it took me to order a drink and drink it and leave was the exact amount of time to place me at this stops, the stoplight to get rammed into, which launched a whole episode. So it's just, it's that sort of thing where you never know what sort of event is going to displace something else. It's like time travel sort of logic too, always gets into this stuff. Like, if you do one thing different in the past, how it affects, basically it has a ripple. And be aware of that. Be aware of the different things in your life that have a ripple. And when you do something that might not be fun, and I mean, I guess what I wanted to get to with that story is, even though it sucked, like, even though it sucked that my car got totaled, it sucked that I saw this woman probably drive for the last time, even though there was somebody sitting in a wheelchair urinating next to me while I talked to the police, 
that felt like probably the right thing. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my intuition wasn't telling me not to get that drink. Maybe my intuition, you know, I haven't thought about what my intuition was telling me four years ago last month, but maybe my intuition is what told me to have that drink and that I needed to go through the ordeal. Maybe I wouldn't be where I'm at now. I mean, that's a fact. I wouldn't be who I am now and where I'm at right now if I hadn't had that drink in Aberdeen that caused me to get hit at that stoplight at that exact time when I got back to Olympia, which totaled my car, which did this, which led to this, which led to all kinds of other events. So that's always a part of this too. When the right direction isn't necessarily something good. And if at the end of that, it might not be that you are doing something you are going to be able to hold on to forever. Like you might be following your intuition and spending time with a girl who you're not going to marry and might do something wrong. You might mess your life up for a little while. But that's necessary for you to be who you, you're going to be later. And who you're going to be later is somebody who's not afraid to die. Because that's the basic goal everyone has whether they realize it or not. This land is mine God gave this land to me this brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free.